This can't be swept under the rug by the state of Oregon, the legislature, and specifically the Department of Justice, the DOJ. Someone needs to be held accountable for the illegal surveillance of Native American women, Klamath tribal members. You know, we're aunties, we're water protectors, um, and we've been standing up against a foreign transnational Canadian fossil fuel company, which would be the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Oregon. So I've spent, you know, the last four summers suffering under the terror of these wildfires in my communities, burning down our treaty lands. Enough is enough. You know, I ask that the judges and Justice Department please be reasonable and humane and understand the level of damage this type of non-transparent digital policing has on our democratic freedoms and human rights. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we shine a light on underreported social justice issues of our day through independent, high-level journalism and music, often incorporating original lyrical contributions from brilliant indie hip-hop artists. That voice you just heard was Kaila Farrell-Smith, a Klamath Modoc visual artist, writer, and activist based in Modoc Point, Oregon, who, because of speaking out against a pipeline project that would have cut through her tribe's ancestral lands and threatened precious waterways, ended up in the crosshairs of the state's fusion center. Wait, what's that? You've never heard of a fusion center? <laughs> well, don't worry, neither did we until we researched this episode, which is sort of the point. Now, as you'll learn in this episode, there's an awful lot that the public and even elected officials still don't know about these multi-million dollar surveillance hubs devised in the wake of the September 11th attacks and stationed within every state. Initially set up to combat terrorism, they've since expanded their missions to include, quote, all crimes and or all hazards and have been heavily scrutinized for their gross lack of oversight, transparency and accountability. They've also been criticized for their incestuous ties to the very corporate entities and projects that everyday citizens lawfully protest against, as well as overreach and infringements on constitutionally protected privacy rights and civil liberties. The quote-unquote intel that their covert and overt tactics have garnered has also come under fire for dubious sourcing, among many other critiques. Perhaps you might remember those mysterious, non-existent pallets of bricks that were allegedly showing up at Black Lives Matter marches? Yep, fusion centers help spread that false rumor, at the bare minimum heightening and inflaming tensions at peaceful protests against police brutality and other injustices. Now, Kaila Farrell-Smith has joined others in a class action suit looking to hold these covert neighborhood spy hubs accountable, suing the Oregon Department of Justice for its unauthorized and illegal surveillance program known as the Oregon Titan Fusion Center. Others shining much-needed light into all of this is Annie Hudson-Price, senior staff attorney at nonprofit The Policing Project at New York University School of Law, who's representing the plaintiffs in that case. And also Brendan McQuaid, assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine and the author of the book Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence, Fusion and Mass Surveillance. Now, a quick reminder to share the love and sign up for our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com to receive new episodes, updates, bonus content, and so much more. We'd also love to hear from you as well. So after the episode, if you like what you heard or have some comments, shoot us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. And please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. All right, here we go. This is Fusion Centers, your shadowy neighborhood spy hubs. 
the Jordan Cove Energy Projects and the pipeline, which is called the Pacific Connector Pipeline, would have or, or will, if the project moves forward, um, rip through my ancestral homelands, including burial and archaeological sites, to put um, this 230-mile pipeline called the Pacific Connector Pipeline from Malin, Oregon, to Coos Bay. This is a huge project with a lot of moving parts, but it doesn't take long to realize that Coos Bay and North Bend are in the midst of an even more vibrant debate. I believe it's important to our future. Is potentially catastrophic. The dividing line, a proposed 229-mile natural gas pipeline that starts in Klamath County. And so Malin's pretty close to me. It's about, I don't know, 30 minutes um, here from where I'm at in Chiliquin, Oregon. And Coos Bay is on the coast, the Oregon coast, which is also tribal ancestral homelands for the Coos Coquille tribes. Today, dozens of people are asking the governor to oppose the Jordan Cove pipeline. Southern Oregon rising tide helped organize a protest. They want Governor Kate Brown to take a stance against the pipeline before the federal government makes its decision. This company is a big company. This community is a small community. I believe this project steamrolled local decision makers. I believe this project purchased political support. This project will disrupt the ecology of this estuary. It will disrupt the economy of this community. If it's built, it will leave a permanent scar on the shoreline of this bay. So this project um, would dig underneath 500 clean drinking waterways, including the Klamath, Rogue, Umpqua, and Coos Rivers with this flammable frack gas, you know, which we've lived through summers of extreme wildfires, which have been very terrifying, so that we have that cause for concern for this pipeline causing more wildfires. I come from the ancestral spring waters and headwaters of these mighty wild rivers, and I'm a water protector and land defender, protecting my ancestral homelands, waterways, and my community, because we're concerned for the missing and murdered indigenous relatives uh, and women. So I'm also a, a mentor of youth in the Klamath tribal community, and, so, and that's what, kind of what I was just talking about. These fossil fuel infrastructure projects bring, you know, extreme danger to Native women, to spirit and youth from, from man camps and sex trafficking that happens and accompanies these large fossil fuel extraction projects. We all knew we were being surveilled. I went to Standing Rock in 2016. So that was kind of the first place that I learned, you know, as a land defender and water protector that we were under surveillance, especially on these smartphones. That's kind of when the first time that I started realizing that this was a threat to us as individuals. We turn now to an explosive new investigation by The Intercept that reveals how international private security firm Tiger Swan targeted Dakota Access water protectors with military-style counterterrorism measures. Tiger Swan began as a U.S. military and State Department contractor. It was hired by Energy Transfer Partners, the company behind the 3.8 billion Dakota Access pipeline. The investigation is based on leaked internal documents which show how Tiger Swan collaborated closely with law enforcement agencies to surveil and target the non-violent, indigenous-led movement. The targeting of Swan's deeply impacted me negatively from the stress and paranoia of kind of like knowing but not knowing. That targeting impacted me so that I left you know, my career in Portland and relocated to my home here in Modoc Point to rebuild my life, heal through painting, and continue to fight for my community at home. But when I really learned that it was all true that we were being watched and surveilled, it was when um, The Guardian posted Will Parrish's articles about the surveillance of Jordan Cove protesters and tribal activists. 
it was kind of a relief to know that something was that we were being surveilled and that there was kind of evidence of that. But my question is, who else do they deem as a threat? This really impacts everyone. All of the destruction from these transnational corporations. I just like to reiterate, you know, we're under threat. We've been under threat from a transnational foreign corporation, Pembina, it's a Canadian corporation. After more than a decade of legal battles and protests, Canadian pipeline corporation Pembina is pulling the plug on its controversial Jordan Cove project and pipeline. This is really exciting news. There are thousands of people across Southern Oregon today who are celebrating. Local nonprofit Road Climate is one of many that have been lobbying against the project. The company proposed to dig a 229-mile-long pipeline stretching from Malin and Klamath County through several more Southern Oregon counties to Coos Bay. The gas would then be liquefied at Jordan Cove and Coos Bay before being exported to Asia. It would have become the largest source of climate pollution in the state of Oregon, and it would have harmed hundreds of rivers, including the Rogue. We're suffering from drought, water issues. It's always water wars down here. Our fish, our chwam, and our lake right here are going extinct. They're, it's like beyond in danger now. It's going extinct from cattle ranching um, and really, really unfettered cattle ranching. Vast stretches of the western U.S. are suffering under scorching temperatures, rampant wildfires, and a years-long drought that is depleting lakes and reservoirs. The water scarcity is tearing apart one southern Oregon community where farmers, native tribes, and endangered species are all struggling to survive this summer. The Klamath tribes have fished in the rivers of southern Oregon for thousands of years. Traditionally, we honored and respected everybody. Everybody had a place and a purpose. And then also wildfires. Timber companies are coming and looting and doing salvage logging of our forests every summer. Last summer was the bootleg fire, one of the largest fires in the country. It burned down my ancestral homelands. So it's kind of a constant strain to be so connected to the land and and the climate change and the climate, what we're seeing with these, you know, the droughts. So. I'm under, I feel like I'm under surveillance from a lot of different aspects of, of what I do as the land defender and water protector. Our goal with the lawsuit is to vindicate the rights of our clients who were subject. And quite frankly, they were terrorized by this surveillance. They didn't understand what was going on because Titan is so covert, because there are no regulations, no statute explaining what they do. Our clients were aware that they were being surveilled. They weren't sure of the scale of it until the journalists published um, sort of this expose revealing Titan Fusion Center's involvement. And it really impacted their lives. I mean, you can imagine how scary that would be. Two of our clients are indigenous activists, and for them, it brought back quite a lot of uh, historical trauma. So first and foremost, our goal is to vindicate the rights of our clients. Our broader goal is to get front-end accountability around fusion centers. It should be up to the Oregon people to decide if, when, and under what circumstances a domestic intelligence agency can spy on Oregon residents. That should not be up to the very agency that is doing the spying. You can't self-regulate in a situation like that. We learned over and over, you can't trust the law enforcement agency to create its own guideposts. And certainly when there are no public guardrails, no enforcement mechanisms, then it's meaningless to even have self-regulation. Frankly, we still don't know a ton. That is part of the nature of fusion centers is they refuse to turn over information. There's no transparency mechanisms. What we do know is that our plaintiffs were subject to extensive surveillance 
by a coordinated group of law enforcement that was largely led and facilitated by the Fusion Center. We know that there are emails in which they are directing the sheriff's department how to surveil our clients. For example, we have one email in which a local sheriff is reporting to the Fusion Center saying, as promised, I've been tracking surveillance at this protest. It actually wasn't even a protest. It was a small rally. We've looked at every Facebook attendee that has registered yes or no. And, you know, and they report, we have to say there's no criminal nexus, but we're still reporting and tracking. So they acknowledge that there's no criminal nexus, but they're still being subject to this surveillance that's being reported up to this, you know, the highest state agency, which then redistributes this information and has a say in how law enforcement resources are directed, who's considered a threat. So for our clients, their experience was they are now being treated as threats. They felt that the very agencies that were supposed to be protecting their rights to exercise the right to assembly, the right to free speech, were actually being used to dissuade them from participating, to intimidate them. I definitely kind of suffered the psychological terror of not knowing who's watching, taping our phones, cameras, or manipulating social media posts, which is another thing that I experienced during this time. Um, however, now that I'm learning the level of like unfettered self-surveillance that we've been under by this Titan Fusion Center, I really, I, I have, I'm terrified for everyone. You know, we're learning that this Fusion Center is one of 80. We're going to do a roundtable discussion talking about civil liberties and national security in the post 9-11 era. Joining us at the C-SPAN table is Cliff May, uh, president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and Laura Murphy. She is the Washington Legislative Director for the American Civil Liberties Union. Laura Murphy, what's the role of government in protecting citizens while maintaining their rights? And what kind of balance needs to be struck in your opinion? First of all, protecting the citizens from violence is the role of law enforcement, and when it's overseas, it's the role of military, and it's also the role of um, a concerned citizenry. So the government has enormous powers, but they must use those powers to protect us consistent with the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and that's one area where we think the post-9-11 world has done some harm to our civil liberties, our, our right to practice the religion of our choice, the right to be free from government surveillance, the right to equal protection of the law. So the role of government is very clear, but it also has to be done with checks and balances so that the government does not overreach while they're defending our safety. Earlier, you had brought up the term fusion center, and uh, one of our uh, listeners, She Rises 20, uh, 2011, sent us this uh, tweet that says, we have a fusion center here in Asheville. They're constantly harassing environmental and peace groups, probably watching Quakers too. Explain to us what a fusion center is. A fusion center is a, a center, a, law, a local law enforcement center that is funded by, um, the Department of Homeland Security more often than not, with the goal of increasing, as Cliff said, information sharing. The problem has been they've been given millions of dollars. For example, the LAPD had a 700-person uh, fusion center, and that was larger than any of their district police stations. And so what happens is they get all of this money, they get all of this intelligence gathering authority, and they run out of legitimate targets, and so they just start investigating peace activists, as they've done in Maryland, anti-death penalty people, 
anti-abortion and, and, and pro-choice activists, environmentalists. And so we have, again, 36 states where we've had complaints about fusion centers and in the District of Columbia in Maryland, there was a big lawsuit against the Maryland State Police for investigating 53 people who had no relationship to criminal activity. So these, these fusion centers are not wrong in and of themselves. They are just not under adequate guidance and controls to safeguard civil liberties. A massive leak of law enforcement records called the Blue Leaks is shedding a new light on criminal threats targeting San Diego. The Blue Leaks data dump includes 269, 269 gigabytes, gigabytes of hacked law enforcement records posted online earlier this year. Most of the records came from so-called fusion centers, super secret intelligence hubs scattered all over the country. We're not necessarily sure who works there. We're not necessarily sure what they're working on. Dave Moss is a senior investigative researcher at the Electric Frontier Foundation. These are little technology hubs that gather intelligence information and often coordinate the use of surveillance technology, but often they just issue these intelligence reports uh, about protests and other types of activities. Fusion centers were created after 9-11 by the newly created Department of Homeland Security. And the, you know, the classic example was, you know, the 9-11 Commission raised the point that the intelligence community had failed to connect the dots, right? That there was bits of information that the intelligence community should have been able to piece together that would have allowed them to intervene and prevent 9-11 uh, from happening. As you might recall, there were some specific threats for overseas that we reacted to. And as the president, I wanted to know whether there was anything, any actionable intelligence. And I looked at the August 6th briefing. I was satisfied that some of the, uh, some of the uh, matters were being looked into. Uh, and, uh, but that, that PDB said nothing about an attack on America. It talked about intentions, about somebody who hated America. Well, we knew that. Had I known there was going to be an attack on America, I would have moved mountains to stop the attack. I don't know everything I can. My job is to protect the American people. And I asked the intelligence agency to analyze the data to tell me whether or not we faced a threat internally like they thought we had faced a threat in other parts of the world. That's what the PDB request was. And had there been actionable intelligence, we'd have moved on it. In the days after September 11th, Many were quick to blame the success of the terrorist diabolical plot on failures of intelligence or preparedness. These public hearings are part of our search for truth. In June 2001, the DCI's CTC had information, a briefing prepared for senior government officials at the beginning of July 2001 contained the following language, quote, Based on a review of all source reporting over the last five months, we believe that UBL will launch a significant terrorist attack against U.S. and or Israeli interests in the coming weeks. The attack will be spectacular and designed to inflict mass casualties against U.S. facilities or interests. You know, the, the example that's often cited is Zaid Jarrah, who was stopped by a uh, Maryland state trooper on September 9th. He was the hijacker pilot of 
Flight 93, which crashed in Pennsylvania. He was on the terrorist watch list, but the Maryland state trooper who stopped him didn't know that and just sent him on his way. So citing examples like this, you know, the 9-11 Commission and then Department of Homeland Security took up this task of integrating all of not just the intelligence community, but all of, you know, what we can think of as the security apparatus. Everyone from municipal police all the way up to federal intelligence agencies. So Fusion Center started out as a counterterrorism program. The politically inconvenient reality, you know, for, for DHS, however, was that there just simply wasn't enough terrorism to justify the hundreds of millions of dollars poured into these intelligence centers. These cameras are being monitored from inside of Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department headquarters in the Southern Nevada Counterterrorism Center. We are trying to make sure that something like 9-11, something like 1 October, something like uh, uh, domestic extremist attacks that you've seen all across the country don't happen in our community. The center is not just staffed by LVMPD. There are representatives from 18 agencies, local, state, and federal. So almost immediately, they shifted to an all-crimes, all-threats, all-hazards mission, which, as you can imagine, is potentially boundless. It's hard to evaluate, and it doesn't really tell you too much about what fusion centers do, right? Some fusion centers include the participation of emergency management agencies and are, you know, mixed up in, like, disaster response and things like that. Others are uh, work with mostly police agencies. Others are co-located with pre-existing federal intelligence sharing programs like the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Forces or the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Program under the Office of National Drug Control Policy. So fusion centers, you know, the general concept is a interagency intelligence hub, but the way an individual Fusion Center works out, or what it looks like, what it does, is a, you know, is its own unique story. In the 10 years since the attacks, Florida has built an elaborate intelligence center to gather and share information. There are a lot of secure databases. The analysts would then go, go through all of those. We have a checklist of things that we would do. With a few keystrokes, elaborate profiles can be assembled. What happens next is one of the biggest changes in 10 years. Numerous state and federal agencies share this fusion center to exchange intelligence. This is an office for the FBI, and right next to it, Homeland Security. And across the hall, the only place in the building where secure information can be exchanged. Because far more information is being collected today than ever before, it has raised concerns for privacy assets. Fusion centers have a low profile. When they first uh, were set up, very often their locations were kept secret. The most basic information wasn't uh, not just the locations, but other basic information, how big they are, the budget, you know, what agencies are working out, out of the fusion center. All these basic facts about the profile of fusion centers was you know, not formally classified, but hidden from the public. This is one of the big issues uh, with fusion centers, is that they were supposed to facilitate information sharing, but they have also created a proliferating series of, of classifications and pseudo-classifications for information that's called sensitive but non-classified. So fusion centers will classify their products as, you know, law enforcement sensitive, or for official use only. That isn't 
secret classification like a CIA document, right? But it is, it means it's a public record that is, you know, exceedingly difficult for the public to, to access. It also means that it allows open records officers uh, in the state police or municipal police departments that are the lead agencies managing fusion centers, it allows them to, you know, deny uh, open records requests for, you know, fusion center documents on the basis of security exemptions uh, and other other exemptions. The scathing 141-page Senate Subcommittee on Investigations report blasts the country's 77 fusion centers, originally created after 9-11 to help the federal government share information with state and local partners in an effort to head off a terrorist attack, among other things. But the report accused the centers of being slow in sharing information with partners, spending wastefully on things like souped-up SUVs that were used for commuting and walls of flat-screen televisions and generating reports that lacked any useful information. You know, your fusion centers haven't always been the best at defending civil liberties. There have been instances where the fusion centers have targeted people for their political beliefs. A few years back, you know, the Missouri Fusion Center was targeting people for their political beliefs, third-party candidates, pro-life people, people with uh, different bumper stickers on their car were said to be targeted by the fusion centers. Civil libertarians have been, you know, watching fusion centers and raising concerns since the concept was first floated, right? The general concern is that fusion centers are predicated on monitoring for suspicious activity that might be a precursor of terrorism. But suspicious activity is a vague and extremely discretionary term. Like what's suspicious to you might not be suspicious to me. Fusion centers will have access to databases of information from state government, from federal government, from, you know, they'll buy databases from private data brokers, and then they'll have people from different levels of law enforcement working out of them. So what this means is that they exist in this like nowhere, no man's land, in between state and federal government, and in between the public and private sector. Fusion centers are designed in such a way to evade accountability, right? Because they exist between different regulatory regimes and they have like different personnel. And what's legal for a state police officer to do is different than what's legal for an FBI officer to do, right? So this gives them a tremendous amount of leeway. A scathing new report says a centerpiece of the nation's counterterrorism strategy is ineffective, expensive, and encroaching on people's civil liberties. The two-year investigation by a Senate panel raises doubts about what are called fusion centers. They were set up after 9-11 to share information among federal, state, and local law enforcement. We've not had one piece of actionable intelligence in nine years out of a fusion center. And we've spent probably in excess of $1.4 billion on And Homeland Security was aware of the problems. They did not report it to Congress, and they also didn't fix the problems. Senate investigators said the centers do play a useful role in fighting crimes like drug trafficking, but they pointed out the main justification for funding the effort is counterterrorism, which the FBI already does. When you have a system that's running behind a veil of secrecy, you can expect there's going to be a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse, and and that's exactly what we found here. The best we know is Titan 
sort of came to be because after the federal government started funding fusion centers, Oregon said, we want one. And so the governor wrote a letter saying, I dub thee the Titan Fusion Center, and now we can get federal funds. But there is no law passed that authorized, you know, in, in Oregon, it's administered by the Department of Justice, the Oregon Department of Justice, the State Department of Justice. But there was no law passed by the Oregon legislature that said, we authorized the Department of Justice to run this all-encompassing domestic intelligence agency. And I put intelligence in quotes because, frankly, the intelligence that they gather is unverified and often inaccurate. The reality is the Department of Justice, like all law enforcement agencies, like all policing agencies, is an administrative or executive agency. And it is fundamental aspect of constitutional and administrative law that an agency cannot go beyond the powers that has been delegated to it by the legislature. So the EPA could not tomorrow decide we're going to start doing restaurant health inspections. There's no reason that policing agencies shouldn't be treated the same way. And frankly, they are. This isn't just the fusion center where this is an issue. This is you see this with facial recognition technology. You see this with DNA databases. You see this with you know automated license plate readers where policing agencies across the country are deciding we don't really need legislative approval. We don't need any sort of democratic buy-in or what we call the policing project front end accountability before we can just adopt wholesale a program that impacts the lives of thousands, millions of our citizens, of residents, of people in America. What's more disturbing about this is without this sort of front-end accountability, without the democratic process, you then see fusion centers doing the sorts of activities that you see in Oregon, which includes, with like with our plaintiffs, spying on advocates, exercising their constitutionally protected rights to engage in peaceful protest. There's so much happening here in Southern Oregon. What finding out that they had this Titan Fusion Center that was very specifically surveilling Jordan Cove protesters and tribal activists like fighting against the pipeline and the level of what that the extent of what that is really knocked up kind of my own personal paranoia and why I really wanted to agree to be a plaintiff on this case because I want to know what they have on me. I want to know to the extent, you know, it's almost like a peace of mind. But the fact that I can't remember the exact acronym definition of Titan, but I know the word terrorist is in there. And my work, you know, understanding that they were treating me and my friends, we've done nothing criminal. We've not never been violent. I've never been arrested regarding any of this activism. I've always been peaceful and just, you know, working with art and doing grassroots organizing and just talking to people and being a public speaker and speaking my truth and who I am and, and why this impacts me directly. And if somebody like me can be tracked as a terrorist and they're treating me like a criminal, then that does not look good for everybody, for anyone. And I'm extremely scared for, for all of us with these bills that um, the current administration's passing about domestic violent terrorists and they're wanting to, to put the eye on all of us. And part of, you know, in those definitions of those bills is people that are standing up against fossil fuel infrastructure. You know, they want to deem that a domestic terrorist threat. And so that's really terrifying. And we need to come together. And so I really, you know, strongly want to put my voice, my story and who I am, you know, on the forefront of questioning, you know, the legality of this. And in the state of Oregon, if I was targeted for my religious, cultural beliefs, that makes this all illegal, that it was illegal surveillance. 
The average person might hear about fusion centers, might think, it doesn't really impact me, even though they say they do all crimes and all hazards, I'm not a threat in any way, I have nothing to worry about. But fusion centers, they collect information from everything. Some fusion centers have your credit report on file, they have your driving record. And when that information gets fused, as what they do, they say they fuse this information from all these different sources, suddenly you have a dossier on you. If you've gone to a gun show and you've participated, exercised your Second Amendment right, there's a good chance the Fusion Center has a dossier on you. One example was there was a young Sikh man at a ferry stop and he was taking a picture because it was a beautiful sunny day and the water looked nice and someone reported him to the Fusion Center as taking a picture of a infrastructure project. And that was an example of a terroristic threat. And now there's a record on him as a potential terrorist because he took that picture. Frankly, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on. There is a good chance that someone out there has had a reason to create a record on you, and it is likely in one of these various fusion centers databases, whether it's facial recognition, credit scores, driver's license, you know, anonymous reports, or a criminal record. One of the major arguments in my book is that fusion centers are part of a ongoing transformation in the way the United States is is governed. I'm very concerned about political policing. I'm very concerned about civil liberties issues. But what I think is the biggest social justice issue, or just issue period, with fusion centers is their role in mass criminalization. In 2013, the city of Camden scrapped the police department. Every member was fired, and a new one, the Camden County Police Department, was born. Police unions were initially banned, though they're back now, and new working protocols established. You can't, you know, get away from the fact that we did have a crime rise in this country. You know, beginning in the in the early 70s, uh, proceeding into the 80s, uh, and into and you know, beginning to level off as you get into the 90s until it started to plunge. You know, really, really plunge in the late 90s and into the 2000s. And oftentimes, that that's the argument we get for how we ended up with so many people in jail. The problem, of course, is that uh, the crime rise and the subsequent fall that happened at the at the uh, middle to the end of the 20th century actually is an international phenomenon. Same thing happened in Canada. Same same thing happened in Great Britain, same thing happened across much of Europe. America is unique in mass incarceration nevertheless. Everybody did not choose that as the answer for how they were going to deal with policy. We made that decision and my argument is that you can't divorce that from the history of looking at black people as though they have some sort of predilection towards criminality. So we know that the United States governs through crime, right? We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. Right, but that's changing. Since 2010, the number of people in state and federal prisons has dropped by 10%. Right, so what's going on? Right, the argument I make is that we're moving from mass incarceration to mass supervision. The prison population is declining or leveling off, but we're not moving back to the era of the welfare state and, you know, you know, a generous social wage and governing with care, governing by trying to meet people's needs as needs. Instead, what we're doing is we're replacing COs in prisons with high-tech surveillance, right? And, it, you know, the polemical point I make is that, you know, there's places in America that are open-air prisons. My book opens and closes with Camden, New Jersey, which, you know, has been the poster child of police reform since the Obama years. 
What has Camden done? Camden is surveillance city. Every inch of the city is under surveillance by security cameras. They have shot spotter microphones. They have all sorts of surveillance systems. You know, now they have their own real-time crime center run by the Camden police. Camden is one of the poorest cities in the country. One New Jersey state trooper told me a quarter of a billion dollars of heroin moves through through Camden each year. You know, what are the police doing there? What are the what is the fusion center doing there? They're keeping a lid on like the violence that comes with you know that regulates a criminalized and clandestine industry. Right? 20 a quarter of a billion dollars of heroin moves with violence. It's not a pretty thing. And the state is not is doing nothing to address like the deeper social problems at root camp. What they're doing is keeping a lid on the suffering with aggressive policing and surveillance. Every major city has a neighborhood that looks like Camden. Every major city has a hypersegregated area of concentrated poverty where the informal economy is dominant, right? And that is what fusion centers are targeting. You know, that to me is the most concerning issue. And I'm afraid as, you know, the global economy changes, right? And work becomes more precarious. Like Camden is a vision of our nightmare future. Well, there it is. Once again, for Newsbeat, I'm Manny Faces. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, as usual, I learned a lot, and I hope and expect that y'all did too. If so, please consider subscribing to our Substack for upcoming episode drops and so much more at newsbeat.substack.com. It's completely free. And please also consider rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us. That's free too. And check out usnewsbeat.com for all of our previous episodes, including those incredible original hip-hop contributions, our award-winning episodes, and so much more. Now, for more about artist and activist Kaila Farrell-Smith, check out her website, kailafarrellsmith.com. That's K-A-I-L-A-F-A-R-R-E-L-L-Smith.com. To learn more about our lawsuit, Annie Hudson Price and the many initiatives of nonprofit The Policing Project at New York University School of Law, visit policingproject.org. You can contact Annie at Annie, A-N-N-I-E, dot Hudson Price at NYU.edu. And Brendan McQuaid can be reached at Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, dot McQuaid, M-C-Q-U-A-D-E, at Maine.edu. And his book, Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion and Mass Surveillance, is available through University of California Press at ucpress.edu. And once again, this is Manny Faces, audio kingpin over at mannyfacesmedia.com. On behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Mori Creative Studios teams, we once again thank you so much for your time and attention. We'll be back soon. Peace. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces. You sick for this one. Sick for this one.